Good morning. Please stand as you're able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. But about that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, the peace of Christ be with each of you. It is so good to be together in worship uh, on this uh, last Sunday uh, of November and the first Sunday of Advent. And we look forward, as Jonathan has mentioned, to the concerts this evening. If you've never been to one of these, uh, you don't know what you're missing. We hope that you'll join us and it will be a marvelous beginning to our Advent season. Let me say, Jonathan, it's so good to have you back with us. Uh, we've missed you and uh, appreciate uh, uh, the double trouble that you're uh, involved in now with those beautiful children and to be with Tommy and Charlie and their parents and family four generations. What a, what a joy is ours to be together today. Uh, we are beginning a new series this morning called Expecting the Unexpected Advent Series. As our acolytes have shared with us the liturgy in the first candle of this season, the season of hope. And we're following the lectionary. We don't often follow the lectionary, the specified readings for three years. Uh, we usually have series, but we're beginning this series by following the lectionary. And having said that, it may seem a little odd to you to hear the text as we're beginning a new Christian year with a reading concerning the end. After all, the word advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming, not going. It means arrival or entrance, not exit. And yet the earliest derivation of the word advent comes from the Greek word parousia, which has to do not with the first coming, but the second coming, the end time, or what we would call the eschaton. The season of Advent was instituted by the church into the liturgical calendar in the fifth century AD. And so for the last 1500 years, these Advent candles, these themes of hope, peace, joy, and love have been ours as a part of the Christian tradition. And what I think about Advent is Advent is to Christmas what Lent is to Easter. In other words, it's a time of penitence, a time of spiritual preparation for the coming of God in Christ. And as well, I think, 
to anticipate the numerous ways that God penetrates our existence every day. Personally, I like stories that begin at the end. In fact, one of my favorite stories was written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's a bizarre tale that was also made into a movie called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Anybody seen the movie? Some of you have seen the movie. Brad Pitt is in the movie. I have a bit of a bro crush on Brad Pitt. I'll admit. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. The story goes like this. A woman dies in childbirth, giving birth to a little old man who lives his life in reverse order from old age to childhood. Watching Benjamin Button live backwards gives new perspective to the human experience. While other people seem to get older, Benjamin Button gets younger. Now, as you can imagine, this causes trouble in his relationships because the woman he loves and marries as his wife later becomes his mother. My wife watched the movie and said, what's new about that? But there's a profound line from the screenplay that is spoken by the main character who says, our lives are defined by opportunities, even the ones we miss. That's a haunting line to me, but it's the gospel truth. Life is defined by opportunities even the ones we miss. Now, the text this morning gives us a word of warning. This is straight from Jesus, a word of warning about missed opportunities. It is possible to miss the things of God when they're right in front of us because we are overly absorbed and preoccupied with our own stuff. We can become so busy making a living that we neglect making a life. I heard a number of fathers the last couple of years during COVID who said, I have spent more time with my children in the last two years than I did the previous 14 years. It is so easy in the busyness of life, making a living, to neglect the making of a life. So when I read this text, I think maybe it helps to begin with the end in mind and work our way back to the present. If you know this text, it's a part of a larger body of material that's covered in two chapters in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew 24 and 25, and you'll find it paralleled in Mark 13. Teachers and students of the word typically call this section the little apocalypse. The word apocalypse means revelation. It means that which is uncovered it comes from a word that literally means to pull the lid off of something. Chapter 24 begins innocently enough with a comment from one of the disciples to Jesus about the beauty of the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus strangely turns the conversation into an unexpected direction when he foretells the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which by the way did happen two generations later in 70 AD. Isn't it true that when we face those kinds of crises, 
that it often leads us to deep discernment, contemplation about ultimate ends and objectives in the unfolding of the human drama. In a sense, what Jesus is doing here, he's pulling the lid off of the future. He's uncovering the time to come. And he makes clear in no uncertain terms that there will be an end to history as we know it. Now, during COVID, there were a couple of times where I thought, Lord, this would be a good time. Come, Lord Jesus. What often seems dramatic, point, uh, what often seems cataclysmic, uh, often is used in the long run towards the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And so God's ultimate purpose for creation will someday be consummated. And of course, when Jesus announces this, the disciples who have inquiring minds, they want to know one thing, when will it occur? Give us a clue. Give us a sign. Give us a hint of the time to come so that we won't miss the opportunity. They, like us, want specifics. Give us a time frame. Give us a due date. Give us a deadline. I don't know about you, but I work better with deadlines. Deadlines are helpful. Did you know that in a historical sense that the origin of that word deadline originally referred to the boundary around a prison, which if prisoners crossed, they'd be shot to death by the guards, deadline. Now that old definition isn't necessarily applicable anymore unless you work for an extremely strict boss. But the term nowadays is used to refer to the date and time by which something must be complete. How about April 15th? That's a deadline. December the 24th, deadline. December the 31st, deadline. We all need them because, and I think I'm speaking for all of us, we are all by nature procrastinators. Now I see some of you elbowing the person next to you. Mark Twain once said, never put off till tomorrow what can be done the day after tomorrow. Charles Dickens said, procrastination is the thief of time and how true it is. I read in psychology today recently that there are three reasons for procrastination. Perfectionism, fear of failure, and fear of criticism. Someone after the 8.30 service said there is a fourth reason. I said, what is it? She said, laziness. That's true. We need deadlines. Some of us put the pro in procrastination. But how do you get ready for an indefinite deadline? Because Jesus doesn't say when. In fact, he doesn't know when. He said so himself. Verse 34, what about that day and hour? Nobody knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the son, but only the father. Jesus said that. And if it's true, then it seems a little bit presumptuous when anyone would attempt to predict the time of his coming. Indeed, our task as the church is not to predict the time, it's to prepare the way, to be alert, to be attentive, to stay awake. The word in Greek is Gregorio. It is the root of the word Greg. 
who is vigilant at the keyboards this morning. Are you awake, Greg? Good. (laughs) The reality in the early church to whom Matthew is writing is that some of the community in the second, third generation of the church are beginning to wonder if Jesus is really coming back. After years of waiting, after years of expecting and hoping, they're about hoped out. And some of you feel that today. They've grown weary and some are falling asleep. And that's not a literal comment, that's a figurative comment. The word in Greek for sleep means sluggish, it means inattentive, it means lethargic. And it happens to the best of us, even in the church. In fact, it happened to the disciples on Monday, Thursday, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, knowing that the next day he was to face the cross, he asked his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, can you stay, can, can you stay awake with me? Can you support me for this hour? And when he looked on them, they'd gone fast asleep. Three times unresponsive, Jesus goes to his inattentive. They were ready for a coup, but they were not ready for a cross. They're asleep. Paul says the same thing in his day to the churches in Rome. Some of them were becoming lethargic, lax in regard to their piety and even their ethics. And listen to the alarm that Paul sounds in Romans 13. Wake up, he says, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty laundry and put on the shining armor of right living. When I read that, it reminds me a little bit of Washington Irving's classic story about the irresponsible henpecked husband named Rip Van Winkle. The story is set in colonial days. He wanders up into the Catskill Mountains by night and there meets a mysterious group of Dutchmen who introduce him to a game called Nine Pins and give him whiskey to drink, and you know the rest. Under the tree at night, he falls asleep, and he sleeps and he sleeps for 20 years. And when he finally wakes up, he finds that he has missed out on some things, including the American Revolution. There are times, there are situations in our lives where it seems like it's just easier to sleep through life. But make no mistake about it, spiritual preparation is the key to being alert to the coming of God. You know, it's interesting to me how much of life is preparation. We have a term for it in the South, we call it fixin'. I'm fixin' to study for finals. I'm fixin' to preach a sermon. Uh, The other day, I was going to clean out the garage, and I was watching a football game, and Sherry came in and said, I thought you were going to clean the garage, and I said, I'm fixing to. And she said, how does watching a football game prepare one to clean out the garage? And I said, you wouldn't understand. So much of life is about getting ready. For example, it takes 25 minutes to get married, but it takes a year to plan the wedding. It takes, and I know this by experience, it takes 12 and a half minutes to eat the Thanksgiving dinner, but it takes three weeks to prepare the menu. 
College football, some of you have enjoyed. Our, the teams play 12 games a year. Those are one-hour games, 15-minute quarters. But it takes 353 days to prepare for those 12 hours. It's in the preparation. It's in the weight training. It's in the conditioning, the drills. Ryan, it's also true in the field of music. Our youth choir is gonna perform these Advent concerts today, and you think, well, it's a piece of cake. It's just easy to do. And they only do it once a year. It's kind of like preaching. You only work one day a week, but it takes six days to get ready for that one day. But James Wells starts these rehearsals that you will see performed tonight in August. Same with chancel choir. Same with orchestra. These are hours, these are weeks, months of preparation. I do remember in one of our churches in rural Georgia where the Christmas cantata actually sounded more like a rehearsal than a concert, but I'm not going there. One of my pet peeves is when someone says, well, I didn't really have time to prepare, so I'm just gonna wing it. And I think, oh no. Whenever I hear someone say that, that's my cue to exit. Because if it's not worthy of preparation, it's not worthy of presentation. If word got out this afternoon that the youth choir was gonna wing it tonight, I'd stay home. You cannot wing your way through life. You cannot wing your way through Advent, through faith, and certainly not through discipleship. It takes vig vigilance. It takes discernment. It takes discipline. It takes practice. But all the examples of preparation that I just shared are for known deadlines. Back to the question. How does one get ready for an unknown deadline? And Jesus helps us. In the text, Jesus cites examples of the peril of being unprepared. Exhibit A is Noah and the flood. While the world was preoccupied with business as usual, with eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, Noah was building an ark. But when the storm clouds came and the creek bed rose, it was too late to start hammering wood and the world just missed the boat. Jesus also uses this image of a thief in the night. I love this. Notice the burglar doesn't send a telegram to the homeowner about the specific time that he plans to break into the house. No, he comes when they least expect it. It's unpredictable. And so you have to be on the lookout. You have to be on the ready at all times. Two men farming in a field, one is taken, the other left. Two women grinding meal, one taken, the other left, one prepared, one unprepared. Our lives are determined by opportunities, even the ones we miss. And this is so Jesus. At the end of this saying in 24, he illustrates with three stories about being prepared or unprepared. In one story, there are five bridesmaids who don't have enough oil for their lamps. And when the bridegroom comes late at midnight, they miss out on the party because they have no oil, which is the symbol of faith. 
In the second story, there's a one-talent employee who fails to invest his gift while the boss is away. And when the master returns, he misses out on the commendation, the joy of the master. And the last is the most haunting to me. When the eternal shepherd returns, he'll divide sheep from goats and the basis of the division will be who was it that fed and clothed a stranger in need? And by the way, that stranger wasn't really a stranger. It was Jesus. It turns out that Benjamin Button was right. Missed opportunities do define life and missed opportunities also define eternal life because not everything in life has a next time. So expect the unexpected. We gotta live on ready. We live every day as though today is the day of his coming. And whether he comes or we go, you'll be ready. One last line from Benjamin Button. And this is my Advent hope for you. I hope you see things that startle you. I hope you feel things that you've never felt before. I hope you meet people with a different point of view. I hope you live a life that you're proud of. And if you find that you're not, I hope you find the strength to start all over again. That's what grace can do. Regardless of what we've missed, regardless of the resentments, by the grace of God, you can start all over today so that your life won't be defined by what you missed, but by what you gained as you prepared for his coming. May it be so in Jesus' name.